And I'd like us to turn in our Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look specifically this morning at verses 12 through 14. But as always, when we open God's Word, before we get to the specific verses that we we want to look at, we want to make sure that we, we gain an understanding of the context that those verses are in. So that we can understand uh, the, the, con- uh, the, 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 the context and the flow of Scripture and what God is speaking about. So that we make sure that we understand the verses that we're looking at and, and the way that God intended them to be. And so this morning I'd like us to look kind of at Philippians the chapter 3. But we're going to eventually focus in on verses 12 to 14 and find the encouragement that God has for us there. In the first six verses, we find kind of the first theme that Paul is dealing with here and setting us up for this. And in these verses in chapter 3, 1 through 6, Paul warns us against having a confidence in external religious credentials. Uh, Paul, you know, at the time that he was delivering the gospel to the churches, was struggling against a movement that was coming right behind the Christian message of the Gospel to have faith in Jesus Christ. And that was by those that were, were called Judaizers. They, they were those that had left the Jewish faith but didn't really leave it all the way. They brought along with it the idea that in order to become a Christian, you needed to fulfill certain of the Old Covenant Jewish things. And in these first six verses, Paul talks about this issue, and I'd like to read those verses for you. He says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Now that's a very strong word, and he's referring here to the dogs and the evil workers. Those were these people that were coming along behind Paul and saying, Wait a minute, don't reject all the Old Testament laws and the Jewish traditions, at least not all of them. And Paul is so strongly compelled in this argument because these were the people that were snatching away the new faith that these young believers had expressed in Jesus Christ. And they were coming along saying, hey, wait a minute, add these other Jewish things like circumcision or something else. It's not just faith alone. It's these other things. Add them in. And so Paul speaks very strongly about them. He calls them the dogs and he says, beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. You see, Paul had been raised as a very good Jewish boy. And he's saying, I'm not saying to give up on these former religious credentials because I don't have any myself. He says, look, if you want to compare my life, let me just throw out for you some of the religious credentials that I could present to these Judaizers. And he goes on to discuss them. He says, I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And he goes out to list these things. Circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I'll tell you what, when Paul was dealing with these false teachers that were following around behind him, those were some pretty 
substantial religious credentials to say these are the things I've earned in my life in the Jewish tradition. In fact, he's not just expressing there, by the way, being circumcised the eighth day, Paul was saying, I'm such a good Jewish boy that my mom... Because you can't do that yourself when you're eight days old. What he's saying is, I want you to know I come from deep roots. Now, as I was growing up, I grew up in the church. In fact, I was on the nursery rolls. I don't recall a day I missed, and it was never because I was getting ready for church. It's because my mom and dad took me to church. And as I grew up and heard this passage taught, I thought, well, I don't have any of those things. I'm not guilty of, uh, you know, having confidence in any of those things. But over the course of my Christian life, I've come to understand that though we may not be facing the same Jewish traditions we can be guilty of developing our own set of external credentials that we can place on ourselves. And we, even though some have come to faith in Jesus Christ, in their minds they keep a little bit of confidence in some of those religious things they're doing. Some people might be here this morning saying, well, I I go to church every Sunday. I go to first service. I've been baptized. I never miss communion. I've been through the classes. I go to church and Sunday school. Even when there isn't Sunday school during the summer. We can create our own list of credentials and things that can get in the way of blocking a genuine relationship with Jesus Christ based in faith alone. And so, although Paul mentions here these credentials that he had in his own flesh, his own religious experience, we need to recognize that we cannot come to God and come to Him and say, here are the things that I've done, Lord. Even in the midst of the the good works that we do, we don't do those things so that we can one day come before God and say, well, look at all these things I did for you. That's not the way that Paul is expressing here that we can be acceptable before God. And then in the next set of verses, verses 7-11, through Paul then expresses the surpassing value of giving up everything in your possession to know Christ. Because Paul says, now I had all of these religious credentials over here, but listen to what he says in verse 7. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. Three times there he has expressed the value of gaining Christ, of knowing Christ, of being in Christ. And he's giving up everything else that was in his possession so that he could know Christ. Verse 9 says, And I may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here's what Paul is expressing in those verses. That holding on to religious credentials 
puts a block between your ability to truly gain Christ. I had an experience of sharing with an older couple that one time came to my church and the husband had received Jesus Christ and he wanted his wife to receive Jesus Christ as well and so they had begun to attend our church and we had a series of meetings where we talked about the gospel and the wife was in agreement with everything until we came to the idea of um, are you willing to place your faith in Jesus Christ alone? And she said, well now I really want to ask a question about that she said because I've grown up in a certain religious tradition and she said I've kind of had all these experiences and she named the different things that she had done and she said are you saying that all of those were worthless that that they didn't that they weren't getting me closer to God and what she had come to believe was that she was kind of on a path getting closer and closer to God and what I was sharing with the gospel she was willing to add that but she was not willing to eliminate all those things prior to that that she had done that she felt was getting her better in a better standing before God. It was very difficult to try to explain to her the intent of this passage that the Apostle Paul himself as well was in the same experience that you were. And in his religious setting, he had done everything that would have placed him in good standing in his mind to be acceptable to God. But he said all of those things were a loss. That's an interesting word that Paul uses there. Because it's a word that has the idea of a ship throwing its cargo overboard. Now, I know we got a lot of businessmen here. A lot of farmers here. I have great sympathy for farmers. I have learned more about the difficulty of trying to raise a crop and being dependent upon weather patterns. Imagine that you've got your crop completely harvested. It's on a boat to ship, and you don't get any money until it reaches the the other shore. But in the midst of the trip, there's a storm. And the storm is so violent that you have to throw the cargo overboard to save your life. That's what Paul's describing here. In order to gain Christ, I had to throw everything else overboard that I thought was valuable in my religious experience. I remember as a young boy hearing a missionary tell a story about how a certain area of people used to catch monkeys they would take a a bottle and they'd hang the bottle by a tree and it'd be connected and inside they'd throw a couple of shiny coins or something like that. And the monkey would be attracted to the coins inside the bottle and the bottle would have a, a narrow neck that would come up and the monkey would stick his hands inside the bottle to get those shiny coins. And as he grabbed a hold of those coins, his hand would make a fist and he couldn't pull it back out through the bottle. But he so valued those shiny coins that he would not let go of it and and the villagers could just walk right up to the monkey and take a hold of it and they had captured the monkey. Because the monkey wouldn't let go of those shiny coins. What Paul's trying to describe to us here is what are those shiny religious things that you may be holding on to that say, you know what, I, I can't give this one up. Because just in case when I get to heaven, I'm going to use it to get in. And Paul's saying all of those things need to be thrown overboard and you need to trust in faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Galatians 2.21 says that if righteousness comes or could be gained through the law, any kind of religious thing that you can do, think of it this way, what he's trying to say, is if you could gain righteousness through any of those other ways, then Christ died for nothing. You see, we don't tend to think of it that way. But the death of Jesus Christ and the shedding of His blood was so precious that that is the only thing that can redeem us from our sin. And when we try to add anything to it, we're actually saying the death of Jesus was worthless and really didn't accomplish the job that God set it out to do. Yet today, we seem to have confusion in the church. I used to ask a question when I was training evangelism. We would ask this question. We'd say, this is the way to ask someone to try to determine what their spiritual state is. And we'd say, ask them this. If you were to stand before God today, we used to say, if you were to die today, except that we had one guy that one time went into a bank and tried to talk to a teller, and he said, if a bomb went off in here and you died, and they immediately pushed the little button and had him arrested. And we said, you know, if they're standing before God, we're going to assume they know they died. Took a while to explain that to. Uh, <laughs> if you were to stand before God today and God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what would you say? Over the course of many years, I've gotten a lot of answers to that. I can't even begin to count the number of times that someone has said, well, I'm, I'm pretty good. I've never murdered anybody. And I've never been arrested for any bad crimes. I'm pretty good. And then I've had other people that were far more humble than that, and they said, well, you know, I don't think I deserve to go to heaven. I'm just going to kind of throw myself on God's mercy and say, please let me in. A group of sociologists from uh, the University of North Carolina studied a group of uh, 3,000 teenagers and they interviewed these 3,000 teenagers. And after interviewing them, these researchers wrote up a series of what these teenagers believed. So they just asked them questions and had them respond. And these were the things that the sociologists determined that made up their religion. And these teenagers were from churches. The first point was a God exists who created and ordered the world and He watches over human life on earth. The second point was that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. The third point was that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. The fourth point was that God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And the fifth point that they believed was this, good people go to heaven when they die. I have some bad news for you. Good people do not go to heaven when they die because they're good. Good people don't go to heaven when they die. Only righteous people who have the righteousness of God. Jesus said to His disciples that your righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. Now when He made that statement, 
He was talking about the most righteous guys living because the Pharisees kept the law right down to tithing their little seeds that come from the mint and the cumin. I mean, the Jewish people viewed the Pharisees as being over the top in keeping and being righteous. But what Jesus Christ was talking about and what is explained throughout the New Testament is that we have to have the righteousness that we don't produce by being good. That's what Paul said right here in verse 9, that he wants to stand before God with a righteousness that comes from God. This religious concept also produces people who are trying to be good, but they don't completely place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they go out and they do good things, and they try to be good, they try to solve things, but it's not for the purpose of serving and loving Jesus Christ. It's so that when they die, they can go to heaven. That's why they're trying to be good. But it also produces something else. It produces a lingering question and a nagging thought in the back of your mind, am I being good enough? You ever met somebody like that? That tries to be good? But when you get around to talking about eternal things and life after death, They're always wondering whether they're being good enough. Well, that question was contemplated by a favorite comic strip character of mine, Calvin and Hobbes. I don't know if you remember the Calvin and Hobbes comic strip, but Calvin was a little mischievous boy. Chad, you'd get right into this, you know, six years old, and that whole man, just a fervor of life. He's got a stuffed tiger that's always alive when Calvin's around. And they used to contemplate very deep subjects, usually in the midst. And since it's the middle of summer, I know I can share this comic strip because they're careening down a snow-banked hill that we're all enjoying not having around us right now. And as they do that, this is what they talk about. Here we are at the top of Dismemberment Gorge, ready to go down. Hobbs, the tiger, says, How about if I drive uh, or steer this time? Get on, you big sissy, he says. The next uh, pain, they say, I've been good all day, Calvin says. I've been good all day so far. Hobbs says, Christmas is getting near, huh? You know, this comes from that old checking it twice, so it's got a list, and who's naughty and nice, and he says, You got it. He says, I've been wondering, though, is it truly being good if the only reason I behave well is so I can get more loot at Christmas. I mean, really, all I'm doing is saying I can be bribed. And then he says, is that good enough? Or do I have to be good in my heart and my spirit? In other words, do I really have to be good or just have to act good? Hobbes says, well, in your case, I think Santa will have to take what he can get. Okay, so, exactly how good do you think I have to be? Do I have to, or how good do I have to act? Really good, or just pretty good? See, he takes it down to the lowest common denominator. If all I have to do is act good, then how good do I have to act? And a lot of people that are trying to earn their way to heaven by being good get into that very thing. Well, do I have to be good in my heart? Well, all I'm really saying is I'm being good so I can go to heaven, but I really don't want to be good. What I want to do is get out there and cheat and steal and lie. I just don't want to get caught. So that kind of a religious idea that 
we're going to go to heaven if we're good. It turns us into this, how good do I have to be? Do I have to be really good or just sort of good? Do I just have to act good? Well, here's the bad news was that good people don't go to heaven. Here's the good news. Good people and evil people go to heaven. I was in Japan with my mission agency last April and one of my experiences was to go visit a church that's being planted there and when I arrived uh, uh, I, I traveled with the pastor and his wife and they only spoke Japanese and so we didn't have a whole lot of conversation about what was going to go on but we were going to meet their son when we got off the train and so we got off the train and I met their son and I said well what's the plan for the night he says, uh, he says we're going to grab some dinner and then we're going to head over to the church. We have a Bible study gathering tonight. And I said, great. It would be good. I love to fellowship with the people. I said, do I need anything? He said, just bring your Bible. Okay, super. I'll just bring my Bible. It'll be a good time. So we got there and we met everybody and we sat down around a table and the, um, the father said a few things in Japanese and the son uh, turns to me and translates and he says, my dad just said we're going to open in prayer. We're going to sing a hymn and then you're going to give a Bible study. Oh, great. Okay, I'm glad I brought my Bible. <laughs> well, I opened to Matthew chapter 22, and we gave a Bible study about the, the king who gave a feast for his son's wedding. It's a picture of God the Father giving the wedding feast for Jesus Christ that we're going to participate in. And in that story, we discovered that the king sent his servants out to invite the guests, and what happened? The guests didn't want to come. We're busy. we got stuff going on. In fact, some of the servants were beaten by the invited guests. And so they came back and they told the king, we're sorry, but the hall isn't full. A lot of people didn't come. And the king says, look, go out into the highways, go out into the byways, and you invite people and you fill my wedding hall. We're going to have a feast for my son. And so they went out. And Matthew 22 tells us that the hall was filled with good and evil people. And you wonder, how do the evil people get in there? How do they qualify? Well, as the king comes out and looks over the guests, he finds one man who's there who's not dressed in wedding garments. Now, this is what happened. When the servants went out into the streets to bring in these, these evil people and these good people, they obviously didn't have time to go home and prepare themselves for a wedding feast. And so what happened was when they came to the, to the feast, to the hall, they said, hey... Here's the room. Here's the garments. Go get dressed. What size are you? And they, they put them all in wedding clothes. But this one man, I don't know whether he was a good man or an evil man, said, I don't need those. I'm just, I'm just, I'm good enough. I'm going in. And when the king came and he saw that man, he said, why aren't you dressed in wedding clothes? And, and, and the guy had no excuse. And the king says he was tossed out into the outer darkness. Now we look at that and we say, wow, is that fair? You were trying to fill your hall. But every other guest there had the wedding clothes on. And commentators tell us that is a picture of the righteousness of God. He provides it for us. It's not something we earn. And that's what's so amazing about salvation and faith in Jesus Christ. That when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, God gives you the righteousness. And what we do now in our lives is not working at being good so that we're acceptable. It is fulfilling back and giving our love back to God to serve Him and be a witness and a testimony for Him. That's why we grew up. I grew up singing hymns like Just As I Am Without One Plea. But that thy blood was 
shed for me. We used to sing that to close our services all the time. When I was a young pastor, I was put in charge of worship at my church and I opened the service with this song. Boy, man, it threw everybody into a tizzy. I got all sorts of notes on the cards. That's a closing hymn. (laughs) I know. But guess what? What happens if we started worship saying, just as I am without one plea, God, before I come into Your presence this morning, I want to be reminded that I'm only acceptable to You by the blood of Your Son, Jesus Christ. We sing often before the throne of God above, and the second verse says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And that's what Paul is talking about here. When he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, he threw everything else overboard because that death of Jesus Christ and the blood that Jesus Christ shed for him is what gives us the ability to come before God and say, here I am. Why should you let me into heaven? Only because you've looked on your Son Jesus Christ and you've punished Him and you've pardoned me. That's the only reason why I can come. Paul goes on in verse 11 to describe the intimacy that comes. Now we're getting to verse 12, okay? We're going to be there real shortly. This is a long introduction. There's not a part two, I only get one Sunday. And in this verse, Paul expresses the depth of his relationship that he now has. He says, I want to. To know Christ. I'm sorry, it's verse 10 where he says that. I want to know Christ. And I need to clarify what the word know here means. It comes from a Greek word, gnosko. And it says to know or to recognize. To know personally through experience. It's not just a knowledge about Jesus. There's a lot of young people that grow up in church and you know about Jesus. The question that I don't want to ask you is, do you know Jesus? Not just about Him. Not just the stories about what He did in His life, but do you have a personal relationship with Him? One in which the relationship between the knower and the person known involves an influence and it influences you so that you begin to change the way that you live. Now be careful here, because we're not telling you to be good because you're a Christian or to be a Christian. But what happens is, when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, something changes in you, and now you want to be good. You don't want to just act good so that you don't get caught. You don't want to just act good so that you can go to heaven. You don't want to just act good because, oh, it makes it better around the house and my parents don't, you know... (laughs) But suddenly inside of you, there's something that changes. I had a young man that I worked with in, in junior high ministry. And this young man, Andre, was. we used to do a, a, a beach Bible study. Every week we'd bring the kids during the summer and they'd meet at the church. He had to be at the Bible study. And we'd do the Bible study for one hour. And if you weren't in the door before we shut the doors, you couldn't get on the bus to go to the beach. It was That was the commitment they had to make. And this one summer, a young guy, Steve, brought his friend Andre. Andre didn't attend our church. And they'd sit in the front row and Andre was absolutely a squirrel. He could not sit still and he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And I'm up here trying to talk and Andre is just... in. Any rhetorical question I'd ask, he'd answer it. 
So I had to change my whole speaking style. You don't ask rhetorical questions anymore unless you want Andre to start answering it. And we went through this whole thing with him. And about midway through the summer, Andre's questions started getting more pointed and more perceptive and more... And one day at the beach, he spent the whole day at the beach continuing to come back and ask me questions about the Bible study. We were going through the Gospel of John and the life of Jesus. And in this uh, Bible study at this day, Andre gave his life to Jesus Christ. Well, he was so excited that uh, later in the week he called me and said, you have to come over to my house and tell my parents what I did. Now, Mom and Dad were divorced. And so he had arranged for Mom and Dad to be there. I arrived at the house, I walked in, and here's Dad sitting on that side of the couch and Mom sitting on this side of the couch. And Andre sits down in the middle and says, tell them what I did. And so I began to share the gospel with them. And they both would interject things and tell Andre. And at one point, Andre's mom said, But Andre, you did all of this at church. They attended a different church and they had gone through a confirmation and he'd done a little thing. And he turned to his mom and said, Mom, when I did that, nothing happened. But he said, When I received Jesus Christ Wednesday as my Savior, everything changed. And you know what? That young man did change. It was a remarkable difference. Now he still had to learn how to sit on his hands and things. But here's what happens. Paul says that when we abandon everything that we formerly considered gain, it results in an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. And Paul culminates this description of this deep knowing relationship involving such a complete identification with Jesus by identifying it as conforming to the death and experiencing the power of resurrection. By the way, we sang about that this morning in one of our songs. I don't know if you caught that as we were singing. We were talking about all of Jesus and talking about the living and the life and the resurrection that comes to us. That's what Paul's describing here. This intimate relationship that he has has come, and he describes it as the power of his resurrection. I'd like to just read for you Romans chapter 6, verses 4 through 6, because that song that we sang about all of Jesus and the life and the resurrection, it kind of comes from this passage. He says, Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. That's the change that happens inside of us. The second phrase that Paul uses there is a fellowship of his sufferings. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says that we're crucified with Christ. He doesn't mean literally and physically, but he's talking about spiritually. We begin to put to death the flesh. 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, "...always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus." so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in the body. And so we have this death spiritually in which our flesh and the sin is being put down and we're resisting temptation. However, we all struggle in that pursuit, don't we? Here we are at verse 12. What a relationship Paul is describing. Such intimate knowledge 
and commitment to Jesus Christ. But if we were to just quietly isolate each person into their booth, we could probably ask, so how many of you are just thrilled and excited about your relationship with Jesus Christ maybe this week? And Paul, having just described that, goes into verse 12 because he knows that we all struggle. Paul described it in Romans chapter 7, even the struggle that he had. And that's where he comes to say to us, not that I have already obtained it. See, because we begin to look at that intimate relationship with Jesus Christ and we say, wow, that's what I long for. That's what I'm looking for. But you know what? It seems dull. I failed. I did some things I didn't want to do. I said some things I didn't want to say. I went to pick up my Bible to read it and I realized I haven't done my devotions for a couple of days. Do I really deserve to go have devotions this morning? And we begin to get discouraged. And Paul says, hey, by the way, we have this intimate relationship with Jesus, but experientially, I haven't obtained it. Not even I, the Apostle Paul. I'm not there yet. And then he gives us three insights to help us set our course to reach the goal of Christ-likeness. Here's the first one. We need to have a humble dissatisfaction with our spiritual life. A humble dissatisfaction with our spiritual life. You cannot assume that you will always be perfect. And this, when Paul says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, he says, but I press on. This does three things. One, it dismisses the self-righteous attitude that some people might have. Because the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, you know what? I have not even obtained it. Don't think that you can walk into a church and say, you know what? I wish those people would stop acting like that. I wish they would stop looking like that. I wish they'd stop dressing like that. Who do those people think they are singing those kinds of songs or doing this kind of things or having that kind of... And we get this little finger pointing and we get this self-righteousness going and you've all maybe been around people like that. (laughs) It also dismisses another kind of an attitude and that's the attitude of discouragement. If you're here this morning you're saying, hey, you know... And I don't know that my spiritual life was all that it was supposed to be this week. Paul's saying, hey, you know what? Don't give up. Press on. Press on. That entire section is set in the realms of an Olympic runner. I was here yesterday at the the Lopet. I, I wasn't running. I was watching the people run. And it was great to watch those at the end of the race that had that spurt of energy left. And said, I'm finally there. And they would run. And that's what Paul's picturing is that pressing on. Don't give up. Paul gives us... He uses the analogy of an Olympic runner. We're running out of time this morning, but I just want to give you this confidence. Paul in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 gave us the confidence that what God has begun in you, He's going to perfect until the end. So, if you're here this morning and you're discouraged about your spiritual life, realize this, God's not going to give up on you. He's going to keep working. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, 
but we and imperishable. Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. In your Christian life, exercise self-control and discipline because you are not working for a gold medal or a wreath. Secondly, Paul says this, have a singular determination. He says, but one thing I do. One thing I do. You know, we have athletes that exercise that kind of persistence in Olympics. We just had the Olympics a year ago. Michael Phelps, I know he's had some problems afterwards. He should have continued to have the same determination of training while he was working. He was in one interview and I saw, and they said, what, what do you do with your time? He says, I eat, I sleep, I swim. He's the most winningest Olympic athlete. And all he has are gold medals. We in our Christian life, Paul says, this one thing I do. 2 Corinthians 11.3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Don't allow your focus to be drawn away from devotion to Christ. Thirdly this, he says, remove any distractions. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. A runner has to keep his eyes focused. He can't be looking up in the crowds and things. And I found a number of verses. We're just going to look at them quickly because they all use the English word fix. And it's not the idea of correcting something that's broken. It's the idea of focusing your mind. Deuteronomy 11.18 says, Fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Allow God's Word to be your focus of your mind. Proverbs 4.25 says, Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. Watch the path of your feet and take only ways that are firm. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Keep your foot from evil. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18 says, So we fix our eyes on what is seen. Not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. That means eternity. Fix your eyes on the future of what's going to happen. Looking toward the results in eternity not on what is unseen. And Hebrews 3.1 says, Therefore, holy brothers, who share in the heavenly, heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the Apostle and High Priest, whom we confess. There's a couple others there. Hebrews 12.2 says, Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. You get the point? The author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him, this is what Jesus did. He wasn't going to step away from the cross because He was looking beyond that. So in conclusion, just want to conclude. Have a humble dissatisfaction with your spiritual life. Don't give up. Press on. Have a singular determination towards greater devotion in Christ. And remove those distractions that would keep you from the prize. Let's bow our hearts in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we would pray this morning that You might come and search us and know our hearts. 
Lord, it's our desire that we would have that intimate relationship even that Paul was describing about Jesus. But Lord, we know that we are not there yet just like Paul wasn't there yet. And so we would pray, Father, that You might give us the focus we need, the determination we need to press on, that we would not give up, that we would bring our hearts and minds into conformity with Your Son, even His death and His resurrection. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.